0: Hello and welcome to the Chess Journal podcast, where each month we host a discussion with the authors of important articles from the current issue of the journal, adding context and commentary to the challenges facing clinicians in the fields of pulmonary, critical care, and sleep medicine. To introduce today's topic, here's your host, Dr. Gretchen Winter. On behalf of Chess, I would like to welcome you to the CHEST Journal podcast. My name is Dr. Gretchen Winter, and I am your CHEST podcast moderator. Thank you all for joining us today for what will be a great discussion on standardized management of hypoxic respiratory failure and ARDS. We are very fortunate to have Dr. Ken Parhar and Dr. Brian Fuller as our guests today. Dr. Parhar and his colleagues wrote an article in the December 2020 CHEST Journal. Standardized Management for Hypoxemic Respiratory Failure and ARDS, Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis. Dr. Parhar is an intensivist and clinical assistant professor in the Department of Critical Care Medicine at the University of Calgary. He leads the Extracorporeal Life Support Program and is also the medical director for the Cardiovascular Intensive Care Unit at the Foothills Medical Center. Dr. Fuller wrote the accompanying editorial, "Help for Adherence to Lung Protective Ventilation, for those who accept it. Dr. Fuller is an Associate Professor of Critical Care Medicine and Emergency Medicine at Washington University in St. Louis. He is a clinical outcomes researcher with a primary research interest in the conduct of pragmatic studies aimed at improving outcomes for mechanically ventilated patients along the ED to ICU continuum. The authors conducted a systematic review and meta-analysis looking at standardized management of hypoxic respiratory failure and how standardized management protocols affected outcomes. Dr. Parhar, to get us started, can you tell us why you decided to pursue this topic, what prompted you
1: to ask this question? Thank you for the invitation to participate in the CHESS podcast. One of my responsibilities here in Calgary is to lead the Extracorporeal Life Support Program and in order to gain some experience with this I went away to England to a very high volume ECMO centre at Papworth Hospital. We would commonly get referrals for respiratory failure patients who may need ECMO, but what was clear was that we would not put on the mass majority of the patients that were referred to us. Some of those patients were refused because they weren't candidates for ECMO, but in many cases, many of the patients, in fact, were uh, had the opportunity to be optimized and further managed with conventional therapies. In fact, I would say almost two-thirds uh, of the referrals that we would get had an opportunity for um, some sort of optimization prior to to ECMO. When I came back to Calgary um, following this, it was a similar sort of experience here. We would get an ECMO referral for a patient who had severe respiratory failure And there would be an opportunity to do things that were evidence-based that included things like lung protective ventilation or paralysis or prone positioning that oftentimes would potentially improve the patient but hadn't been considered. And so this was one of the main motivations for trying to get a better answer on whether a standardized pathway for the management of patients with respiratory failure, in particular ARDS, would be beneficial.
0: Now, your review included a number of different studies with varying protocols. Which management components were included in these studied protocols?
1: So half of the studies that we included in our trial were protocols that included just ventilation pathways, and the other half were actually comprehensive, so they included things like ventilation, but also things beyond ventilation uh, and were more comprehensive. For those that included ventilation, it included things like measuring a patient's height so that you could accurately estimate their predicted body weight, uh, dictating what type of ventilation strategy to use, In the vast majority of this, this was a tidal volume limiting strategy, and also ensuring that there was uh, regular or accurate measurements of plateau pressures. In pathways that were more comprehensive, it could also include things like the use of recruitment manoeuvres, when and when not to use sedation or neuromuscular blockade, and also advanced things like prone positioning and or ECMO.
0: You notably found several positive outcomes that were associated with standardized management. Can you review your findings for our listeners?
1: So in our systematic review and meta-analysis, we included 12 studies that included two randomized control trials and 10 quasi-experimental trials for a total of 5,767 patients that we were able to pool. Our primary finding was that we found that with the use of standardized management, there was a 23% relative risk reduction in mortality. This was roughly an 8% reduction in absolute mortality. In addition to this, we also found that there was an increase in the number of ventilator free days when using standardized management, roughly three and a half increased ventilator free days over 28 days, and we also found that there was a reduction in the tidal volumes that were prescribed when using standardized management. We used meta regression, and what we found was that the greater the degree of tidal volume reduction the more the likelihood there was that you would have a reduction in mortality. Now, our study findings should be interpreted in the context of their limitations. We did note that there was significant amounts of heterogeneity, primarily due to differing study designs and a heterogeneous group of patients that were included, both hypoxemic respiratory failure patients and ARDS, and also that the standardized management pathways all had different elements to some degree. In addition to this, many of the studies that we included had significant amounts of bias, and this bias is really primarily related to a lack of confounding, although some of the studies did use matching, uh, particularly propensity matching, to overcome uh, some of the confounding that that would occur. We had a limited number of randomized trials, and the vast majority of trials that we included were quasi-experimental. And based on this research,
0: if you were to design your own standardized protocol for the management of hypoxic respiratory failure or ARDS, are there specific components that you would want to
1: include? So, in fact, we've actually gone through a process in Alberta uh, where uh, I work uh, to actually create our own pathway, and there's really three large elements, I think, that are important for creation of a pathway like this in order for it to be successful. The first uh, component is really focusing on that diagnosis and making sure you limit under-diagnosis of conditions such as hypoxemic respiratory failure and acute respiratory distress syndrome. If you don't diagnose ARDS, it's gonna be difficult to apply the evidence-based therapies to it, and so this is a common problem that comes up. The second uh, large piece of a pathway, I think that's really important, is to focus on the the elements that are evidence-based. And the parts of our pathway that I would argue are the most robust are limiting or using lung protective ventilation by limiting tidal volume and plateau pressures and arguably driving pressures, uh, making sure you have um, clear instructions on how to use paralysis, and even though that's under a bit of debate right now, adequate uh, acknowledgement of the use of prone positioning appropriately, and also having some sort of avenue or strategy for rescue if all of those things fail. Finally the third component I think that's really important for a pathway is roles and setting and so ensuring that the pathway gets started in the right place and so a lot of our patients come from the emergency room so starting it in the emergency room certainly in the ICU and assigning some of the elements of the pathway to members of the team. They don't these elements don't necessarily need to require a physician in order to order them. Things like measuring a patient's height, applying lung protective ventilation, uh, helping to uh, solidify the diagnosis of ARDS can be assigned to other multidisciplinary members of the team. We're fortunate in Canada where we have respiratory therapists, other jurisdictions may not, but uh, much of this work can be delegated um, to, uh, to uh, non-physicians to help uh, facilitate uh, early application.
0: You mentioned that there is a lot of variability in the management of these patients. What factors do you think lead to that variability?
1: So I think there's a few factors that likely influence this variability quite quite a bit. Uh, number one, I think it's very difficult sometimes to diagnose ARDS. When you have patients that are on 100% oxygen and their x-rays are whited out on, bilaterally, Uh, it's pretty easy to make the diagnosis of ARDS, but sometimes for mild and moderate ARDS, the x-rays aren't so clear-cut, and, you know, the oxygenation might be borderline, and so it can be easy to miss patients that have early or mild or moderate forms of ARDS. In addition to this, um, not all um, uh, centers have the same technology available, and so some centers may have prone positioning as a routine part of their management. Other centers may have readily available ECLS and so they may not use prone positioning as much because there is a um, a motivation to move to to ECLS uh, much quicker. In addition to that, I think uh, translating science and evidence from uh, papers to the real world through implementation science and knowledge translation is probably a, a a growing field in the uh, in critical care. And from that perspective, we we have a lot of work to do. The fact that the ARDSNet trial looking at lung protective ventilation with low tidal volume ventilation was done in the year 2000 and we're still talking about implementation strategies for it in the year 2020 illustrates how long it takes for some of this evidence to really trickle down into frontline practice. And so implementation science and using uh, evidence-based techniques to try and get that science into frontline practice uh, is probably not uh, where it should be for critical care and certainly an area for growth.
0: Dr. Fuller, in your editorial, you wrote about how ARDS is overtly underrecognized, and that under-recognition is accompanied by less optimal ventilator management that leads to an increased risk of death. What factors do you think contribute to this under recognition and the management problems?
2: That's a great question, Um, and thank you for having me. It's it's nice to be on the to be invited for the uh, for this chess podcast, and congratulations to Dr. Parhar and his colleagues for a really methodologically sound and, and really well done systematic review and meta-analysis I think it adds it, it fills in some gaps in the in the research it's really nice um, so thanks again but um, so to get to your question so ARDS is it's not recognized it's underrecognized it's it's really frequent so it may be, Fifty percent of the time, depending on the study that you read, uh, multiple studies show this, um, including you know several. Whether clinical recognition of ARDS may be as low as twenty-five percent, thirty percent, so a really overly underrecognized recognized in, in some studies. Um, I think it's really important because recognition of ARDS really is tethered to you know practices that improve outcome. It leads to lower tidal volume typically, it leads to higher PEEP, it leads to greater use of beneficial non-ventilator strategies to improve outcomes, such as neuromuscular blockade use, prone positioning, multiple studies have really shown this. I think that's even more important when considering that multiple studies show an increased risk of death when lung protection is not adhered to in ARDS. So just recognizing it and tethering that recognition to therapy is beneficial. And then, as Dr. Pahar alluded to earlier, I think that when you recognize that ARDS is present and you really optimize the ventilator, it may avoid some unnecessary interventions. Um, that the patient really doesn't need, such as ECMO, when it's not warranted. Clearly, ECMO saves certain patients' lives, but it should be reserved for those that either have life-threatening hypoxemia or life-threatening ventilator-associated lung injury that you just can't handle otherwise. Um, Factors that really contribute to the under-recognition, I think it's really polyfactorial. I think some of it's probably organizational, where if you have a lower physician to um, patient ratio, aka the, the, the physician has too many patients to take care of, probably going to lead to a higher cognitive load on the physician that she or, she or he is just too taxed mentally to sort of flip the switch and, and recognize ARDS. I think there is some clinician-centered stuff also where if, if there if someone has an overt risk factors for ARDS, they grossly aspirated or had a massive inhalation injury from a fire, they're probably going to get ARDS recognized. But if they don't have an obvious risk factor, um, it's going to lead to under-recognition. I also think there's knowledge deficits that really persist to this day um, that needs to get sort of overcome with education and and implementation initiatives. And um, I think some other clinician-centered stuff is maybe sometimes we... Lack we don't have the willingness to relinquish a little control over the ventilator, and I, which doesn't empower our respiratory therapists to recognize that ARDS is there and have really great suggestions on the management for for how they how we should employ the management of these of these patients also. And then similar to what Dr. Paulhar also said, also I think there's some patient-centered stuff as well. You know, if, if ARDS is not severe, um, there's a greater chance it's not going to be recognized. And then if the patient's obese and their chest x-ray is a little bit more challenging to interpret, that can uh, make the leap to that ARDS diagnosis a little less awesome. Um With respect to what you asked about the, the management problems, um, I don't think it's all necessarily tethered to recognition of ARDS clinically. I think it's probably more complicated than that and an area really ripe for knowledge translation and again not to, to be an echo chamber for Dr. Parhar again but I, I, I totally agree that this is great great area for di- dissemination, dissemination and implementation type research um, but I do think that the public really deserves a return on investment here since non-adherence it's it's poor but it really saves lives so I think D&I research is a really attractive avenue in my opinion you
0: also mentioned in your editorial that some people believe protocols, quote, enforce mediocrity. Can you please explain that viewpoint and your response to it?
2: Sure, love to. Um, I, I think there are, some, there are some very strong opinions in both directions of protocols. Um, some of those are very um, robust pendulum swings and, I, and I, just in my opinion I think in medicine and probably in life we should probably find some sort of middle ground and you know never trust a zealot so to speak um, but on the one side I think rigid adherence to protocols is foolish because you know human biology is simply way too diverse for one size fits all for the sickest the most complex patients that's really where the role of a, a really well-trained intensivist and multidisciplinary team comes into play. So you deliver timely, physiologically sound, evidence-based treatment where it exists um, to the right patient at the right time. You're, you go off protocol because you just can't put this patient in a protocol. There north should there be for this, how sick and complex this patient is. On the other side, I think... Clinicians and ICUs that completely shun protocols and care pathways are really left to sort of a choose-your-own-adventure where very similar problems um, are managed in a very different way, and that's usually based on the physician's preference, the physician's training, their biases, their mood, etc., I think in those situations, the deliver the, the, the delivery of really sort of simple nuts and bolts therapies are suboptimal, and this is the very complex stuff. So I think, at least in my experience, those tend to be ICUs where non-physician providers such as nurses and RTs they're really less empowered to think and act, but they're really sort of left waiting in the wings for a physician order, which is a real shame because. Those providers are really at the point of care at the bedside more frequently than doctors and they're so important. Um, we then have evidence for protocolized approaches and standard care pathways and searches in certain situations. It's very robust research. Paired awakening and breathing trials comes to mind. It reduces ventilator duration. It improves mortality. Sepsis screening and treatment um, Another sort of along those lines as well. Um, and then I think maybe philosophically, I think there's just an, an important viewpoint is actually how we deliver critical care has improved outcomes probably more than anything else. So the organizational structure for care delivery is probably more importantly, certainly than any advance in medicines or therapeutics that we have because we're, we're in an era of syndromic, you know, syndromic critical care. Um, and I think really this has to do with things such as trained intensive staffing ICUs, nurse to patient ratios, the presence of farm deeds farm and nutritionists on rounds, multidisciplinary rounds, physical therapists, etc. And I think protocols sort of baked into the cake of the organizational structure of an ICU really fit into that. So I think you can conduct a business in an ICU with really a, a set of simple protocols. They tackle... Sort of everyday things in the ICU that range from electrolyte depletion for to ventilator weaning and many things in between, and they really function to reduce the unnecessary. And I always stress the unnecessary practice variability and how a measure is approached. It just sort of streamlines care, it reduces cognitive load, and it allows the other team members, of the, of the, the other members of the team, to really think more, work more, and, and empowers them. So this is just sort of how I think protocols are best rolled
0: out. Dr. Parhar, back to you. What do you see as the future steps for this research?
1: Great question, and uh, I completely agree with Dr. Fuller that we need to basically create pathways that are easy to use and uh, and adopt, and so we're actually focusing on that uh, right now, and I, I think Probably one of the challenges of guidelines and uh, all of the evidence that we see coming down the pipes is it can be very difficult uh, to digest and contextualize a lot of that evidence for your own local work environment. And so in Alberta, what we've done is we've created or modified some of the pathways that have already been published uh, that uh, you'll find in the systematic review. and tailor those to our own local uh, work environment based on the type of expertise that we have, the type of hospitals, and also uh, some of the local factors such as the availability of respiratory therapists and nurses uh, with uh, what's uh, uh, what they're allowed to do within their, their practice uh, uh, patterns and based on that uh, in fact we're rolling out a pathway that we piloted at um, one of our uh, ICUs to all 17 ICUs in Alberta Uh, across the province over the next uh, 18 months. And I think this is probably um, uh, important for any healthcare jurisdiction to try and adopt some sort of baseline pathway uh, for these types of patients because again I completely agree with Dr. Fuller that the idea of a pathway is not to limit um, uh, a clinician's ability to deal with unique scenarios but in fact to limit the unnecessary variability that may be associated with a bad outcome. So making sure that heights are universally measured, uh, ensuring that any patient that has hypoxemic respiratory failure or ARDS gets appropriate Uh, tidal volumes and has plateau pressures measured, and doing all of those simple things to to make sure that um, those are uh, standards of care, not things that should be ordered, thought about and requested on a case-by-case basis. And with that, it allows, uh, I think, clinicians to open up uh, their bandwidth and spend it on so, sort of some of the the intricacies and the more challenging cases, and not waste uh, waste bandwidth uh, ordering what should be really standard practice for for many patients. Um, I also fully agree that uh, ARDS uh, in particular is probably overdue for the development of some sort of pathway that can be marketed. And uh, you know, I think when you look at things like the Surviving Sepsis Campaign or the ABCDEF Bundle, which for those of us in the critical care world are pretty uh, easy to recognize um, uh, and we all know immediately what uh, what everyone is talking about. ARDS doesn't have a similar... Uh, type of pathway or brand, and I think given uh, the amount of time uh, that we spend on ERDS patients, in addition to the fact that these patients also are very sick and have a high rate of mortality, it's probably important going forward for us to develop uh, or make the leap now from uh, primary evidence and guidelines, which we have an abundance of, um, to uh, to basically frontline implementations science uh, based uh, clinical practice that can be translated uh, uh, directly to, to clinicians at the, at the in the front lines, and that's not an easy thing to do um, and really requires champions in every jurisdiction, but is something I think we should uh, we should try and aspire to. Our goal in uh, Alberta is to try and conduct, while we're rolling this out, a stepped wedge cluster randomized control trial uh, testing our implementation strategy to see if it's actually successful in improving uh, rates of use of evidence-based practice, along with um, uh, reducing some of this unnecessary variability. So we'll be testing to see if our, our implementation strategy um, is, uh, is successful or not. But I think, uh, again, this is an area of growth uh, for uh, for this type of work.
0: Now to both of you, if you could give our listeners a closing thought on what you've learned from your experiences in this study, what do you want them to take away from this discussion?
2: I think from from my experiences, um, you know, certainly uh, uh, I I probably don't provide necessarily the completely unique insights here, um, but from my experiences, I think that collaboration with non-physician providers um, routinely, clinically, is extremely important um, because it one, you learn a lot. You'll just be a better doctor and take better care of patients um, if you if you collaborate and listen to your nurses and your respiratory therapists. Um, but it also the care they deliver uh, becomes much more enthusiastic and better, and if you do that on a day-to-day basis, um, it creates a very good culture. I also think, from a research strategy standpoint, when you actually want to do rigorous clinical studies clinical trials um, that you need those pe- those people to sort of play in the sandbox with you it's already sort of baked into the cake and so um, collaboration from from my research team has been um, that's been really really important and I think this particular study that dr. Parhart just discussed and the one that we're discussing for the chess podcast fits into that really really nicely um, Particular to this topic, I, I think for me it's it's really to promote lung protective protocols that use lower tidal volumes and the avoidance of unnecessarily high FiO2s, which mask the need for higher PEEP, and do that really from the onset of respiratory failure. That's in the pre-hospital domain and then the back of a helicopter, the emergency department, um, and as well as the intensive care units, operating rooms, etc. Um, in this earlier, we do that. Um, we know that it influences down down care stream delivery, um, you know, subsequent care, and it also improves outcomes. So we've done this a lot in the ED. It's improved lung protection across you know our entire care domain. And I think the um, the current study that Dr. Paul Hart and colleagues did is is really great. I think it collates the literature in that respect really nicely, and I'm looking forward to. The next bit of research that they that they published it's really great stuff and Dr.
1: Parhart I would agree with all the comments that dr. fuller uh, made and I guess my uh, the only thing that I would add to uh, his closing thoughts uh, for mine would be is I think the one thing that I've learned from the systematic review is that having a plan um, whether it's even if it's a simple one is better than having no plan and so in our systematic review it didn't matter um, you know how you constructed the pathways but they all seem to have some sort of benefit so I think for if you're working in a jurisdiction where you don't have a pathway for hypoxemic respiratory failure or ARDS, you know, again, um, like Dr. Fuller mentioned, uh, you know, if you have the ability, create a multidisciplinary team. Uh, there's great guidelines out there. Other people have uh, have uh, pathways that you can look up uh, that are all summarized in the systematic review, and come up with something that works in your healthcare jurisdiction, and then be ready to iteratively refine it as time goes on but at least you've got some sort of uh, plan to uh, uh, to backstop you because these patients are sick um, as we've seen with the COVID uh, pandemic um, this can drain a lot of resources and you don't have a lot of time to think sometimes uh, when uh, things get really busy and so it's nice to have uh, a backup uh, uh, system that uh, allows us to uh, these patients to be taken care of in uh, in um, in a way that uh, uh, allows you to focus on the parts of them that are quite uh, quite unique, and patients shouldn't really be missing out on um, things like having their heights measured or having appropriate tidal volumes dialed in, because we all know that those things are are going to be of benefit. There's just too much science, I think, coming down the pipes um, now on all different aspects of critical care for us to be able to digest and synthesize things ourselves in in every aspect of critical care, and uh, I'm passionate about hypoxemic respiratory failure and ARDS, uh, and I'm able to do this or help uh, some of my colleagues here locally, and then I rely on my colleagues in other areas like neurocritical care and cardiac arrest or other things to help me out in, in, in those things. So uh, I think the use of pathways and having plans for patients, especially with these types of syndromes where the risks are so high, is really important uh, uh, to elevate everyone's care.
0: I'd like to thank Dr. Parhar and Dr. Fuller for sharing their time and their expertise with us today in this great conversation. And a big thank you to our CHESS community for joining us. I'm Gretchen Winter, and this is a CHESS podcast. Until next time.